Welcome to Adding Fuel to the Hire, a podcast for hiring managers and job seekers across all types of dealerships. With over 20 years collective recruitment experience, Rowan, Tony and Phil draw upon their knowledge to help you navigate through the recruitment and job hunt process. For more information, head to our website, addingfueltothehire.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Adding Fuel to the Hire. I'm your host, Tony, and with me today is Rowan. Hello, Tony. How are you going? I'm not too bad. Yourself? Yeah, getting there. That's good. So today we're going to be talking about flexibility throughout the recruitment process. Um, and broadly speaking, this is about, uh, we, we always, in, in most of our episodes, we've encouraged everyone to have a process and make sure that the whole business is uh, is buying into that process and they understand what steps need to be taken but I suppose this conversation is around flexibility um, and ensuring that it's not just a rigid process that if someone doesn't fit within it, then you just don't hire them or they don't fit the bill, you, you flick them. And it's just understanding, I suppose, that human element of recruitment, the fact that uh, there is no perfect answer to anything because we are dealing with humans on a day-to-day basis and therefore flexibility is key. Um, so... I suppose it takes us to our first point, and I've already touched on it, it's that human element of it, um, and, and the fact that because we are dealing with humans, you can have the best processes in the world, but unless you have the speed and communication to, uh, I suppose, effectively complete those processes, then they're not going to be successful. Communication is everything, especially um, just, I suppose, once again, it's it's humans, they won't trust something unless they know what's going on. They need to be communicated to, kept up to date, um, being talked to throughout the whole process um, and, and just making sure that whatever happens, your communication is is up there with the best because that will provide you a lot of uh, a lot of safety nets, I suppose, throughout the process. If you do have issues and you do need flexibility, if you've got good communication levels throughout the process, then that will save you uh, save you big time. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and and uh, being prompt with that uh, communication as well, you know, making sure that you're getting through to them. Yeah. Even if there's nothing to update, and I've said this probably four or five times in our in our podcast, is, yeah. you know, even if you don't have something to update, uh, it's still good to update, uh, you know, to, to keep that communication going. Yeah. It, as I know, there was a, an episode earlier where Rowan said that, uh, you know, sometimes providing the update, there is no update, is, uh, is just as good as providing a, yeah. a detailed update. It could save the day. Yeah, that's it. Um, so I suppose the first thing when it comes to flexibility in the recruitment process that's a, a really obvious one because it is so tangible is just arranging interview times. Um, I've, throughout my recruitment career, found many occasions where uh, employers will have a, a pre-existing idea of when they want to conduct interviews, and that's fair enough because of the hiring manager's availability. But if they call up the candidate and that candidate can't fit into that time frame, then it's essentially to that candidate's detriment and they can't get a look in. Um, and most often you'll see when that's the case, those interview times will be Tuesday, 10 a.m. till 12 p.m. So if you are employed, you've essentially got to chuck a sickie, come up with a good excuse to get out of work um, and find your way to a competitor a lot of the times, sneakily. Yeah. Uh, and not get caught. So it, it's just so important to have flexibility in that situation. Yes, it is really difficult if the hiring manager has a, a select time frame they're available, but I think the first obvious solution that we find works most often 
uh, and that candidates definitely prefer is availability after hours for interviews. Um, it, it just makes it a lot easier for them to be able to get out of work. Um, well, they don't have to get out of work, but they can just slyly uh, sneak over, I suppose, after work and, and not get caught. Um, but I think from my perspective, candidates will more often than not say, are they available after hours? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and also you could look at uh, uh, maybe doing a quick phone chat with them in the first instance, uh, you know, and it, cause if you can't stay back at work to do that after-hours interview, maybe an after-hours phone call for both of you for the first interview is is maybe a better option because you can you can still have that discussion. You could do it from home. Uh, they can do it from home. You can have that discussion outside of business hours. No one's going to get caught by going mm. to your competitor. But at least then there's more buy-in from both parties. Uh, the employer might think, oh, actually, yeah, I really want this guy. Tomorrow or next Wednesday I'm going to make the effort. I'll make sure I get somebody else to pick up the kids or whatever and I'll I'll stay back and, and wait and meet this guy afterwards after work. And then same for the candidate. They may uh, then be more willing to try and maybe leave work a little bit earlier so they can come and see yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, for a first interview it, it is hard to sort of try and get them to make that uh, call in a sickie or, or do something like that, which may not be the best uh, look for you as their potential employer as well, that they're so willing to take a sickie straight away. Exactly. It's a, it is a double-edged sword. A, a candidate that is happy to chuck a sickie and, and come in for that interview is probably just as likely to be happy to do that, you know, when, when you're their employer yeah. Yeah. Uh, two years down the track. So often your best employees are the ones that will uh, at that stage say, can I do it after hours? I don't want to uh, upset my current employer. They've been good to me. They don't, you know, they don't deserve that. Yeah, um, exactly. So, yeah, unfortunately, I've had a lot of in instances where candidates have just been uh, been forgotten about or, well, if they can't make it work, then, you know, they obviously don't want the role, um, which is a really old school way of looking at it because, you know, a candidate can really want the role. They just don't want to upset their current employer in the chance that it doesn't come off. So, exactly. Um, yeah, it's really paramount. I think the point you raised about the initial phone call um, has been a lifesaver on so many op uh, so many situations where, yeah, for whatever reason, it just can't be made to work. It's 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. The candidate can't get there. Um, and we've encouraged them to do a phone interview. And, you know, the candidate can duck out for half an hour, jump on the phone. Um, it looks like they're on the phone to a client, so it's less risky for them. Half an hour chat, yep, now I'm more invested. Um, the employer's more invested because they really like them, and then they just make it work. Yeah. Um, and then also that phone chat can be a really uh, quick and easy screening tool to say, you know, for whatever, you know, if you have non-negotiables and they don't tick those boxes, well, then you can say, well, let's not waste our time um, and, and go down this path. So, um, yeah, definitely uh, a f quick phone call can save hours of, of, I suppose, planning and scheduling down the track. Um, but I, I think the, the next one, that's uh, another obvious one is uh, flexibility around the reference checking process. Um, a lot of companies will just black and white. If you don't have a good reference, we won't employ you. Yeah. Um, and I can definitely understand the logic behind it, but there are so many variables to references that you have to think about if you're going to run that kind of mentality and, and have a lot of weight against them. Um, I've always said that reference checks are based on the false assumption that the employer giving them was in the right. Um, and a great example of that is if there was a falling out between an employee and an employer um, and they are forced to give a reference from their last employer and that's where the falling out occurred. 
Um, more often than not, that would have left a bad taste in their mouth because they had a falling out and you get the reference and it's all negative. So if you're going to rely on that reference, then you're relying on the assumption that the candidate was in the wrong and that the employer was completely in the right. But we don't know that. You don't know the two sides of the story. Yeah, exactly. So, Well, the flip side to that is what if uh, the candidate isn't actually that great at their job uh, and they've given one of their current managers as a referee? Um, Which I have actually done this before at, a, at another company. So they give a good reference. Yep. So that the other employee someone else's hates problem them. exactly. So, you know that that is the flip side to that. It, it is exactly right. So I've always been anti-references is the wrong word um, because there is definitely a place for them. But um, all too often we see employers that uh, will tell us that they've moved on a staff member, and you ask why, and they say they're not performing. But uh, then they do their internal reviews, and they say, well, we don't know what went wrong. We did reference checks on them, and uh, and you know. We didn't pick any of this up. We don't understand why. So it's, yeah, understanding that uh, just because someone's telling you something doesn't mean it's the truth. Um, they could be uh, making them sound a lot worse than they are, a lot better than what they are. Um, you know, a lot of the times these days, and I, I've had many reference checks where I conduct, and it's positive, but you walk away and you go, I don't know if I got the full story there. And I'm sure there is a large element of people are fearful to give accurate references anyway for fear of, you know, legal repercussions and, and the changing landscape. You know, if you're not up to date with what you can legally, you know, disclose and what, what becomes defamation and, and all that ambiguous stuff, um, you know, people are on the side of caution of just not saying anything negative at all. So there's so many variables to reference checks that uh, they aren't the gospel when it comes to uh, to a candidate and what they mean. So uh, I suppose when it comes to flexibility, it's just understanding uh, those variables and understanding, well, just because something was negative or something was really positive, it doesn't mean it's the be-all and end-all. How can we, uh, I suppose, dig in deeper and find out uh, a little bit more information or utilise this in a, a better way? Um, and, and I think it's also uh, good to ask the candidate for specific references as well like can you give me your direct manager from this employment because yeah. you know with privacy law and things it is hard just to call up an ex-employee and a uh, employer and ask about employees so uh you need to technically get permission by the candidate so if you can if you've got specific people that you'd like to talk to to find out about candidates uh, ask the candidate for that person yeah so, look I'd, I'd really like to talk to this person about your you know, your experience, can you please give me their details and can I conduct a reference check? So not just calling the ones that are on the reference but asking the candidate for specific uh, people's contact details is, is another way of just trying to get to that uh, root cause or, or, you know, issues that that may present themselves, uh, trying to find objective references. Yeah, and uh, another thing with reference I just thought of with when it comes to flexibility is um, – you know, a, a lot of companies will have preset in their pr processes that we need the last two references or the two references from their last two jobs. Um, but you have to understand that a person that is applying for a job that's currently employed isn't likely to want to give away the uh, the details of their current manager. 
um, you know, things might be looking good for your job, but if they don't, uh, if they don't get the role, then suddenly they've disclosed details for their their current boss, and then if things uh, yeah don't go ahead, then they're in a really awkward situation. So you have to understand and be flexible that not every candidate is going to be able to disclose that information, um, and it's not necessarily because they're hiding something. Um, we've had a couple of really good examples from uh, a number of clients where. Um, you know, they'll want current references, but the person might have been employed at the same company for the last 10 years. Mm. So it makes it really difficult. If they don't want to disclose their current manager's details, which is likely, um, well, then you're going back 10 years um, before you're actually talking to a previous manager. So think back to 2010, 2009. It's a long time ago. So how relevant is that reference to you anyway? So um, a couple of examples I've had in, in those situations, I've suggested, well, why don't we look at um, providing contact details for clients or people that we currently deal with? Um, you know, At least they're modern, they're relevant, and then you can provide one previous example from uh, from 2008, 2009, um, from an, another role a couple of, couple of roles ago. But yeah, not everyone in is in the same boat. Not everyone can supply uh, those references. So just understanding the candidate situation and looking at it from their situation in their eyes, I suppose, and go, well, what would I want to do if I was in that situation? Um, would I give up this information or not? And then, uh, and then, yeah, letting them disclose what's, I suppose, best case scenario um, for their situation. Yeah, and an- another thing I think is is worth raising about flexibility and reference checks is understanding that a a negative or a, or a weakness or something is not necessarily a, a deal breaker for that candidate. You know that taking that as a as a uh, a learning opportunity or a training opportunity of being able to improve it. If they've got all these other skills that you think would be great for your organisation, but their communication didn't uh, get rated highly by yeah. their referees, well, you know that this person has great skills. Uh, but they need to work on their communication. So that can be your first port of call for training is is trying to book them into some sort of communication course and really focus your efforts on that. So it can just be a way of trying to find opportunities to grow this person yep. and to overcome maybe some of those weaknesses that they've had in the past. Yeah, and, and that is the key right there to references is, uh, is not using them as a screening tool, but rather, um, and you're not using them as a screen tool because of what we said, they're built on that premise that the person giving them is, is telling the truth. So what you want to do rather than using them as a screening tool using them to find out how am I going to best manage this person and how am I going to get the best performance out of them. And so, as Rowan just said, it's using objective questions, um, steer clear of subject questions when reference checking because that just, uh, I suppose, leads into that concept of talking about subjective things that uh, have you know opinions of people. Um, so keep it objective, find out what, how do I get the best out of them and then, uh, and then using that when uh, when they've joined your team to get the best out of them and to uh, to go from to go from there, I suppose, and use that to, as your starting point. Um, and, and I suppose this isn't really relevant to flexibility, but just a, a quick topic on uh, on reference checks um, with candidates. You can definitely use them now to your advantage as well. Um, jump on LinkedIn, jump on Google, find contact details for uh, previous employees, current employees. Jump on, give them a call. Um, find out what it's actually like. But once again, um, take everything uh, with a grain of salt, I suppose, and, um, and yeah, really uh, think about who's telling it to you, what's their, uh, what's their, I suppose, vested interest in telling you that and, uh, and then doing your own research and making up your own mind. Um, yeah, that, uh, that'd be 
the main points. But um, another huge one that kind of very similar to arranging flexible times, but another thing that uh, we see all the time where, uh, where both employers and candidates are very rigid um, that do need flexibility is that interview travel costs, uh, particularly if it's interstate travel. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's a contentious point that's come up many, many times. Um, but, yeah, w- where do you sit on it, Rowan, and, and how do you feel? Who pays for what and uh, what would your best practice be? Uh, look, it's hard to come up with a one-size-fits-all approach, but I think in general it depends on the location of the candidate and yourself, how far they've got to come, the level of the role as well. Um, but generally, if it's a more senior position or the role is, um, you know, paying a, a high salary and you want to attract the right person, I think it's fair for the employer to offer to pay that yep. um, because, you know, ultimately you want to sell yourself to a, a top candidate. So you want to invest in them and, and spend the money to get them there. Uh, and then once they're there, you obviously continue that. But uh, if it was somebody, uh, you know, within a couple of hours and they had to drive, you might want to really, uh, reimburse their uh, petrol costs or yep. hotel costs or something like that. Or, or maybe if you don't feel that you should pay the whole amount, maybe you split it 50-50 with the candidate and you say, well, look, I'd love to get you out to the dealership and have a look. Um, why don't I give you uh, $200 for fuel uh, and you take care of the hotel and we sort of call it even. Yeah. Um, so that, that's another option as well. And opening that communication line nice and early. I think if you go down the path of, uh, you know, you're in Victoria, we're in New South Wales, we want to get you in for an interview and then um, nothing's discussed and the candidate asks, well, am I paying for the flights? What's happening? And then you're just expecting them to pay it all. It rubs them the wrong way from day one. Um, you know, not every candidate is in a financial position to be able to do that. Um, so it really comes down to, uh, you know, how desperate you are, how badly you want someone. Um, there's so many different factors. But I think uh, the important part with it is just understanding that uh, it really just yeah, it needs to be an open line of communication um, and it needs to be something that's thought about and discussed openly. But the, the biggest tip we can probably take home from uh, from this chat about uh, travel costs, and hopefully it's something that people have been forced to do with everything with COVID-19, is if uh, if it's going to be a costly exercise to travel um, and it is the kind of the last thing to do, we'll make sure that you've ticked every possible box previous to uh, to having to actually rely on the travel. So don't uh, don't have one phone call for twenty minutes on the phone and then expect uh, the candidate to jump on and uh, and fly down on a three hundred dollars flight to come and visit you. Um, you know, do long, extensive phone interviews, do Skype interviews, do, you know, testing, do everything you possibly can so that the very final thing is a face-to-face. Um, that way your chances of being certain that they're going to get the job, um, they're the right person for the job, um, you know, it's very limited margin for error. And so at least that way, any money that is invested by yourself or the candidate is hopefully going to be well spent because it's going to end up in them taking the job. Exactly. Um, and talk about salary as well. Yeah. I think that's a big thing. You know, I've had people uh, travel across the country to yeah. talk about a position and they hadn't even discussed salary yet and they're nowhere near each other. Um, that's something that's very important that, you know, you don't need to agree on a final figure because obviously a candidate might want to view the dealership and, and yeah. learn more about it. But 
being on the same page and understanding where each party sort of sits in their ballpark is is very important before investing that money, I think. Yeah, otherwise, you, you know, both of you could be out of pocket $500 and then you've realised that uh, – you know, the, the candidate wanted 120 grand and you wanted to pay 80 grand and it was just never going to fit. So it's something that's so easy uh, to, to figure out in the early stages. But yeah, use technology to your advantage, Skype, uh, phone calls, whatever you can, just get it out in the open, figure it out before you even go down this path because it will save you a lot of time and money uh, in the future. And then uh, that kind of ties in nicely to uh, the final little piece of the puzzle when it comes to flexibility in the process and that is relocation and costs involved. Um, there's so many variables that we've seen and, and working examples that are good and bad. Um, but yeah, w- w- what about you, Ron? Well, I suppose you've probably had the most experience with this, uh, particularly with senior management type of roles. It's very common, but what have you found works and, and doesn't work when it comes to relocation and, and the costs involved and how you work those out? Well, look, a lot of the roles that we recruit are regionally based. So, uh, there is quite a large relocation to an area that the candidate may not have been before. Uh, so that is something to consider and, and maybe tailor into the package. So it is quite common for those relocation costs to be paid by the employer yep. uh, up to a certain amount. They might put a cap on it. We'll give you up to $10,000 to relocate. Uh, but if you leave within six months, you've got to pay half of it back or, you know, there, there could be some clauses there in, yep. in the employment contract. Um, how much they uh, are uh, legally binding yep. is up for debate. Uh, but I guess, uh, you know, putting it in there gives gives them that, uh, I guess, a, a way of, of well, not binding, but, you know, having that candidate committed to your dealership yeah. um, so that they know that, you know, you've, you've invested all this time and money in getting them there, um, that if they just leave for another job yeah. um, in the local area or something like that, then obviously that's not the right thing to do. Um, so trying to come up with some sort of agreement there that uh, those costs be repaid is, is quite often uh, or quite common. Yeah, and a good alternative, it doesn't work for everyone because it does rely on the candidate having the money up front. But uh, one example I've seen is where rather than giving them an upfront payment, it might be a $10,000 relocation bonus, um, but they might not get that until they might get two grand at the three-month mark, two grand again at the you know five or six-month mark, um, and so on, so that they're actually recouping that money as a, a cash bonus at a particular time point. So at least from the employer, you're a little bit more protected. You know you're actually going to get that return from them um, before you have to fork out the money. Obviously, it doesn't work for everyone because sometimes the candidates will need the money then and there to relocate. But if uh, if you've got that rapport and you've opened the lines of communication right from the start, then it's definitely something that you can achieve um, just, yeah, if – the rapport has to be there, otherwise it can uh, come across uh, negatively. But, um, yeah, if you have that relationship, you have that rapport, then it definitely can work. Um, but it's a difficult question because there's probably no right answer and I'm probably putting you on the spot here a little bit. But uh, what do you, in your opinion or from your experiences, do you think should be paid for by the employer versus the candidate in a relocation situation? Yeah, look, it varies and, and it is a, tif- a difficult question to answer because um, – What's important to a candidate mm. varies, uh, and what's important to the employer varies. So, uh, the candidate may want. Uh, I've had examples of overseas placements where the it was really important, and even a, a, a local um, interstate transfer. It was really important that the the candidate's children's schooling was maintained. Yeah. So having an assistance for education expenses, whilst that is very uncommon in offers that I see, this was a very senior position. Yeah. Uh, and 
having those taken care of because the role was so remote, there was no education there, yeah. um, that was important to them. So that that's something that that particular candidate placed a lot of value yeah. on. Um, so it just really depends on what's what's important to them and their family as to, you know, they may not have the money to relocate as well as something that you could consider. So, you know, is it a loan that they pay back? You know, there's just so many different options. But yeah, flight, relocation of uh, furniture, tools, um, uh, temporary accommodation at the local hotel uh, or a caravan park or a rental even. Yeah. You know, there's, there's so many different options. It's hard to sort of say this is what is generally paid for. Yeah, and I think from from my uh, experience, the ones that seem obvious and work really well because they are so, uh, I suppose, tangible for a candidate when they're starting is the idea of uh, accommodation um, to help them get on their feet in a regional town. That's a big one because often accommodation is the hardest thing. So, you know, prop them up in a hotel for two or three weeks until they're ready to go. Um, the other one it's really obvious is uh, tool relocation. Um, you know, it pertains directly to the job they're about to do for you if they're a tech. Um, but, yeah, paying for them to, to ship their tools over, it goes a long way because it, it can feel like you're almost just wasting your own hard-earned dollars spending money on, on you know, relocating your tools for a job. So, um, yeah, it's two things that aren't relatively that expensive in the grand scheme of things, but um, they go a long way to, uh, to setting that candidate up for uh, a long time with your company and buying into the culture and enjoying it. But, um yeah, I suppose that's uh, that's everything for that one. I know it's a, a bit of a, a difficult topic to cover off on because there are so many subtopics we could discuss in there. So if you do have any ideas or thoughts uh, listening at home uh, to what we could talk about uh, in, in greater detail, please shoot through some uh, some questions in the show notes below. There'll be a link. But otherwise, thank you for listening and we'll be back again next week for more. Thank you for listening to another episode of Adding Fuel to the Hire. If you have any questions or you'd like to hear us talk about a particular topic, why not send us an email at podcast at addingfueltothehire.com. If you like what we do and would like to support our podcast, please leave a review on your podcasting app of choice. For further information, please visit our website, addingfueltothehire.com.